<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 11. It's titled Bank Runs, Repos, and Your Retirement. Now, bank runs. You might be saying, David, we don't have bank runs in the United States anymore. Perhaps there's some around the globe. In fact, there was a bank run in Bulgaria last month, and it was spawned by rumors. I think it was Facebook rumors that there was these kind of these fighting wealthy families, and they started rumors, competing oligarchies, and households and individuals thought there was going that the banks were going to go under, and so they lined up and and wanted their money back. When that, and that's what a bank run is. A bank run is when depositors worry that the bank is going to go under and, and they're going to lose their savings. And so they, they do everything they can to withdraw money out of the bank. And they'll line up ATMs. And that's what happened in Bulgaria. Long line to the bank. Eventually, the, the central bank of Bulgaria had to step in, and I believe that this, the European Central Bank had to step in and, and sort of backstop and so the confidence could get back into the system. In the United States, we don't have bank runs anymore, or they're very, very rare when it comes to households and depositors. Prior to the Great Depression, bank runs were quite common. They were, they were often called panic. There was a major one in 1907. And, and the reason why we don't have bank runs today was, is because in 1933, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, was established by the U.S. government. And that insures deposits at banks up to $250,000. And so if a bank fails, then your, your savings are, are protected. And we do have bank failures. I, I invest. When I invest. I had I had my money in one of the first internet banks, and it was called NetBank. And I, I this was probably two thousand seven. So I I had my money in there for three or four years, and the next thing I knew, the NetBank had been taken over by ING, and they they changed my account. They got emails, and and I didn't think anything of it. It's only later that I realized that NetBank was the first bank that failed during the financial crisis. But because we have the FDIC insurance, it was seamless. If we didn't have that, my, the amount of money I had in, in that bank, my, in my checking account, would have been gone. So we have protection. We don't have bank runs in the traditional sense. Yet the financial crisis the global financial crisis that began in 2007, the source of that crisis was actually a bank run in the United States. But it was a bank run not led by individuals and households. It was a bank run led by institutions. And that's what we're going to talk about today because 
bank runs happen then, they can happen again in the future. And it's important to understand how, how can that be? How can we have bank runs th- when we have FDIC insurance? Well, that's where the word repo, which is short for repurchase agreement, comes in. And I'm going to explain that and explain how banking works for institutions. Because institutions if want to invest or, or save more than $250,000, any amount above that, they don't get the protection. And by institutions, we're, we're talking about businesses, insurance companies, also mutual fund companies or other institutional investors. Any, any type of organization that, that's going to have more than $250,000 in, in their account and want protection. Because they, they don't qualify for FDIC insurance, what they do is they enter into an agreement with a bank. And by bank, it could be a, a traditional bank or it could be a, a broker-dealer type bank or a Wall Street bank such as Morgan Stanley or even a number of banks that we'll talk about that failed during the financial crisis, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers. These were were called broker-dealer banks. And so they, they didn't necessarily lend money like a traditional bank, but they would invest capital and they, they, were, they would organize deals. They would do all kinds of stuff. But they also collected deposits in the form of these repurchase agreements or repos. So let's say you're an institution, you're an insurance company, and you want to, you have $100 million, and you want to put it in a bank, and, but you want it to be secured. And the way that they work is they, through these repurchase agreements or repos, that $100 million would go to the bank. In, a, in exchange, the bank would give that institution or that insurance company collateral. And collateral is something to secure the deposit. And it could be, it's an investment security. The most secure collateral out there are U.S. Treasury notes, so U.S. government bonds, because as we've talked about in earlier episodes, the U.S. government cannot default on its debt. It's, it's physically impossible because U.S. government can always create money to pay that debt off. The only way a, the U.S. government could default on its debt is if Congress chooses to do so for political reasons, but mechanically, it can't be done. And so U.S. government debt is very, very secure. It's sort of the top-tier type collateral. And so here's how these repurchase agreements work. The insurance company deposits the $100 million, and, and, and then the bank gives more than $100 million to the insurance companies, Let's say it's $105 million. And so because there's that collateral serves as security, they ask for, for a little more so that in case the collateral goes down in value as interest rates fluctuate. And, and the difference between the value of the collateral, $105 million in this case, and the actual deposit, $100 million, that difference is called a haircut. And, which is kind of a strange term, but, but effectively it, it's, it's sort of that, that spread, that additional extra to protect the depositor. 
Now, in reality, this is not, I mean, it's a deposit, but the bank effectively is lending money or selling that, they're selling that collateral to the insurance company. The insurance company is giving the bank money. And the reason why it's called a repurchase agreement is the bank agrees to buy the collateral back. And so this is a contractual agreement, two parts. Insurance company gives the bank money. Bank gives the insurance company collateral. The collateral value is worth more than the money that the insurance company gave the bank. That difference is called the haircut. These are typically very short-term agreements. The standard one is a day. So one-day agreement, and it, but they, they renew automatically unless each party wants to step out. Now, the insurance company has put some money in, $100 million. They, the reason they want to do that is to earn some interest. And so when the bank buys back the collateral from the insurance company, they'll pay a little more. And that little more effectively is interest, which is called the repo rate. Now, that, that might seem somewhat esoteric, and who, who cares? But the reality is that is a huge market. There are, there's about $14 trillion of traditional bank assets. So banks take in deposits, and, and deposits are liabilities that banks have to the depositors. And then they have those deposits. So that's on one side of their balance sheet. On the other side... Are there assets? And, and what are assets for a bank? Assets are their loans. When they loan money, they're earning interest. And that's an asset. And about 53% of FDIC-insured financial institutions' assets are loans. The rest of them are, are securities. So they're U.S. government bonds. They, they could be real estate. And they're reserves at the Federal Reserve. And so banks... Only half of banks' assets are loans. And some of these broker-dealer banks or Wall Street banks, very, very few of their assets are loans. Most of them are investments that they're doing. But again, so that's a $14 trillion traditional bank market. It's difficult to estimate how big is the market for repurchase agreements, but it's, it's, it's almost as big. Some estimates are $12 trillion. Now, this, this repurchase agreement, these repos, this is what's known as, and you might have heard of the term shadow banking. So it's, it's sort of, it's not necessarily outside of the purview of the regulators, but it, it's, it's, it's certainly less regulated than traditional banking. And, and it's huge. And, and so you have these banks that are giving collateral to institutions, and institutions are giving money to the banks, and they're rolling it over every day. But as I said earlier, this was one of the causes, if not the main cause, of the financial crisis. And which, which when you talk about, the, in the title of the podcast, we, I've mentioned retirement. Retirees got absolutely decimated in 2008 when the market fell well, over that entire 2007-2008 period, fell about 40 to 45%. And I know that the, you know, many of the institutions that we manage money for, their investments fell sort of in that 20 to 30% range. Everything went down. 
Here's why. I mentioned this haircut. What if a bank who is, or not an insurance company or another institution that has entered into one of these repurchase agreements, given money to the bank in exchange for collateral, what if they start to worry that the bank is going to, to go under or they're, they're at risk somehow? What, what do these institutions do? Well, they have a couple choices. One, they can ask for more collateral. In other words, they want to increase the haircut. They might have put in $100 million, but now they want $120 million uh, of collateral. The other thing they do is they can cancel the repurchase agreement and say, I just want my money back. And what happened in the 2007 to 2008 period was exactly that. Many of these banks, if you recall back in that time frame, house prices were starting to fall, and there were many securities called mortgage-backed securities or securitized mortgages that had been sold out and parceled out all over the world. You could basically buy a slice of a mortgage, and that's what a mortgage-backed security is. It's a bond. It's a debt instrument you can buy, but you, you can they, they sort of divvy up. It's like divvying up a pizza and into smaller and smaller slices. But the way that they typically work is many of these mortgages shouldn't have been given in the first place. The, the borrowers were not qualified. They're, they're just, it was a complete farce in many regards in terms of what the banks were doing. But as part of packaging up and slicing up this, these mortgage pizzas around the globe, the banks would often keep a portion, usually the most risky portion, of these, these securities. And so the institutions that had entered into repurchase agreements started to worry, like, which, how bad is it? What is the exposure of these banks to the housing market that was falling, and particularly the distressed securities that were tied to the housing market. So institutions in mass began to demand more collateral and cancel the repurchase agreement. That was a bank run. It was an institutional bank run, and, and, it, and many don't realize it even occurred because it wasn't infecting individuals directly. It was affecting individuals indirectly because of the way what happened next. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. April and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. 
businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash David, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash David now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Because it was a bank run and all the institutions wanted their money back, and, and, and so what the banks had to do, they had to sell securities in the market to, to raise money to give back to the institutions. And, and what was so fascinating about 2008 is the securities that fell the most were the ones that had the highest quality. In other words, banks were trying to sell the most liquid, highest quality securities because they just, they just had to, it was a fire sale. They had to raise money to give back to the depositors that wanted their money back, that, that wouldn't renew the repurchase agreement, or in some cases wanted way, way more collateral. And so the banks had to raise the money to be able to buy the collateral to give to their depositors. There were a number of banks that actually failed. It was, it was mass chaos. Lehman Brothers, for example, failed. Bear Stearns failed. The, the Fed actually had to, to negotiate or takeovers of various banks. And there was major, major distress throughout the financial system. It nearly collapsed. It nearly collapsed. And it was because of of this bank run and the worried institutions that wanted, wanted their money. They didn't want to, there was a, well, they just wanted their money back. So huge fear in the marketplace. It was because of the bank runs on these repurchase agreements. Now that's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about collateral and, and what is going on. There's this term called a collateral chain. And and the example I want to give, in fact, this is this is sort of this is just fascinating. This was a fascinating story. This is from I'm gonna to try to not butcher his name. Manmohan Singh. He's a senior economist at the International Monetary Fund. And he wrote an article and I'll and I'll include it in the show notes. But he gave in this podcast we've talked a fair amount and a couple episodes about what's going on in the clothing market in terms of cheap clothes and, and sort of how all that works. 
But so he gave an example that I thought was, was pretty telling. And he, he talked about how merchants in, well, think about it, where does all the used clothes go? We're buying, as I've mentioned earlier, we're buying just the volume of clothes that we buy because it's so cheap is huge. Where do the clothes go when they go on? People get tired. I mean, we're in a throwaway society in many regards. Some of it ends up at the thrift stores, but there's only so many clothes thrift stores can take. And so much of it is actually packaged up and sent to, to developing countries. And, and I noticed this a few years ago. You'd have these remote, these pictures of remote tribes in, in Africa. And those places that hardly civilization, or at least advanced civilization, and that even showed up at. Clearly, every society has a civilization. But you'd see pictures of these tribes, and a kid would be wearing an Old Navy shirt. And I'd scratch my head. How did an Old Navy shirt get to the remote regions of Africa? And, and here's how. These, these used clothes are packaged up, and, and they're vacuum-sealed in a sort of pressurized, huge shipping container bundle of clothes, and it's sent overseas. Now, there are clothing brokers overseas in, in these developing countries. And what they'll do is, let's say, they're the pressurized shipping bundle, there's a block of it, of clothes, shrink-wrapped, weighs 500 pounds. And the broker will sell 10-pound lots of these clothes to 50 people. And but how, here's how it works: is they, they'll charge you money, but they'll charge a higher fee for somebody to be in the front of the line. Because what's going to happen is that you have this this pile of clothes that's shrink wrapped, pressurized. The broker is going to bust open that bag, and clothes are going to go everywhere. So if you're in the, it's going to be a mad scramble. So if you're in the front of the line, you got a better shot at the best clothes, and, and that's that's what's happening in in the clothing market. Collateral is the exact same way because I've, just, I've explained to you repurchase agreements or repos where an institution is putting money with the bank in exchange for collateral. Banks are actually do the, what's called a reverse repo where an institution such as a hedge fund will give collateral to the bank in exchange for money. And so it's the exact opposite. In this case, the institution is giving collateral to the bank. What many people don't realize is you would think, all right, that collateral secures the loan. It, it just stays there. No. Banks will reuse collateral. They might take that collateral they got from the hedge fund and use it as part of the repurchase agreement that I described with the insurance company. So collateral gets passed on. It can be passed on several times. And it's just like this: these clothing brokers, the, the collateral desk at these banks, they get all this collateral and they say, okay, what, what is the top tier collateral? What is the best collateral that we have? Is it U.S. Treasury is usually an example. And so they'll 
they'll sell that collateral. They'll use that collateral for whoever will pay the most in terms of being able to use it in some of these repurchase agreements. And and that's exactly like these 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 closed brokers do. In other words, whoever's willing to pay the most gets the best collateral. Whoever's willing to pay the most for the clothing brokers gets to the front of the line to get the best clothing collateral, the best the best clothes in there. And one of the things that's happened today in the bond market is if you ask your typical Wall Street strategists, what the, what's the bond market going to do this year? They're, they were going to say interest rates are going to go up dramatically. And in fact, interest rates have fallen in, in 2014. And one reason is there's, there's a shortage uh, of top-tier collateral, U.S. Treasuries. Why is there a shortage? Because the Federal Reserve has been buying up U.S. government bonds U.S. mortgage-backed bonds as part of their quantitative easing program. That's what QE is. That's the Federal Reserve buying bonds in the open market or from banks. So they're mostly buying them from banks, but then where's the banks getting all these securities or bonds, U.S. government bonds that they're selling to the Federal Reserve? Well, they're getting it from all these institutions around the country because they got to they buy them in the open market. But the, what the reality is, the, the number, the Fed has become one of the largest holders of U.S. government bonds and U.S. mortgage-backed securities. And that's, that's the top-tier collateral, and it's effectively being locked in the Federal Reserve closet. And if there's less collateral, that actually could put some downward pressure on interest rates. And that's one reason interest rates fell this year. And that's why it's very difficult to say in any given year interest rates are going to go up. I mean, because it's it's not the people that are buying bonds aren't buying it for the yield. The Federal Reserve's buying bonds because they're trying to put downward pressure on interest rates. They don't care what the yield is or the return is. The same thing that individuals or, or excuse me institutions that are buying U.S. Treasury bonds in order. If I'm a hedge fund and I, I want to borrow money from a bank in one of these reverse repo agreements, I need to go find some top-tier collateral. I don't care what the yield is. I'm just going to buy it. And so there's this huge demand for U.S. Treasuries from the Federal Reserve and institutions just for using a collateral, which is one reason interest rates can be very, very low because people don't care about yield. So what's the takeaway from, from this episode? One, there's a shadow banking system that is very as large as traditional banking and involves institutions. And there can be bank runs in that segment of the banking market. And that was one of the causes, if not the cause, of the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. Second takeaway is collateral is reused over and over in these collateral chains. And there's a shortage of collateral right now or just the limited amount of collateral is putting downward pressure on interest rates. Third, there's you can actually monitor the health of the repo market and whether institutions are getting worried about the shadow banking system and are demanding either higher repo rates, more collateral. There's a measure called the LIBOR OIS spread, 
And, and it actually tr jumped dramatically in, in early 2007. It was a precursor of what was happening. If you want more information on that, it's a little complicated for this podcast. You can email me at jd at jdavidstein.com or ping me on Twitter at jdstein. That's also how you can get a hold of me if you have suggestions for future podcasts. The good news is podcast is, is broke the top 25 on iTunes for investing and is now in the top 100 under business. I Thanks for listening. If you would, though, in order to keep it there and allow more people to discover the podcast, please go on to iTunes and just leave. You can rank the thing, give it some stars. I don't care how many, hopefully five, but whatever you think it's worth. Or you can leave a review. You don't, if you don't have time to leave a review, just, just rank the thing. You can give the stars without leaving a review. Just uh, one review this week, uh, Lincoln G86 said, Great podcast. Looking forward to many more. As always, the information on this podcast is for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I have not made predictions on the market. Certainly education. And, and if it's something that you'd like to, to hear more about you can, or you have a question, go ahead and email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. This is episode 11, bank runs, bank runs, repos, and your retirement. Next time, episode 12. Thanks.